Matthew 8 is where we're going to be. I'm going to read through the text uh, and then we'll dive in, uh, starting at verse 18. Now, when Jesus uh, saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds in the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples came to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the east, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, Two uh, demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass their way, that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs are feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You had to have been there, or I wish I had been there, which is actually a... uh, a, a major journalist group uh, set out to ask sports writers of the last hundred years, what are the things that you wish you would have set out to see? And they all wrote different things. It's actually quite a fascinating publication to put together. Some wrote things like, uh, it could be the start of something big about the first time in 1904 that the basketball became a part of Olympic Games. The one that fascinated me is the Second World War kicks off. That in 1941, the Eagles and the Redskins were playing a football game. And uh, it was around uh, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time, 9 a.m. Hawaiian time. The author describes DC's Griffith Stadium that day, and no one in the stadium was thinking about Pearl Harbor. Yet bombs had already fallen, men had died, and war had come. In the stands, no one knew. Philadelphia had taken a lead, seven to nothing, when some announcements started rolling through. General so-and-so, you're needed. Take a phone call. Uh, Ambassador so-and-so, you're needed. Take a phone call. And various people were asked to leave the stadium. Even a quarterback being interviewed said, we didn't know at all what was happening. And it was actually only the the men and women in the press box who seemed to have an idea. The Redskins president himself would not allow any announcement about the war during the football game because he said it would distract the fans. And the stories today feel like one of those occasions where I wish I would have been there. Wish I would have seen this, this unforgettable day because I think there's stories in the life of Jesus that if I were to have a time machine, I'd be like, I want to go back and see that. Like that, if I were to go back in time, first century would probably be the stuff I want to go see. And this is one of those. 
and it even reflects a little bit of that story. And it's fascinating because luckily there were disciples there this day to record these stories, to record this moment. Yet, just like the previous story, maybe there's a great battle that's happening and yet many are easily distracted. Which I think is a little bit at the heart of what Jesus is after here. Because it opens with this. Now when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Now the difficulty in this whole text is that um, it was really hard to decide how individual of a text or how collective of a text to really deal with. And this starting line actually made it much easier for me to think that this is a package by Matthew. That Matthew starts a section saying, we're going to go to the other side, and by the end of these stories is when he goes to the other side and something actually happens. It's as if this one line could have been inserted later, but Matthew puts it here ahead of these other stories for a reason. That this interaction that's about to happen could be a part of the same story. So it says they're called to go to the other side. Anybody know what that might mean? What's the other side? What was that? Yeah, the Sea of Galilee. What's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? If you're in Capernaum, well, the map's already up there. Thanks, Andy. Um, That's okay. The other side of the sea is this area called the Decapolis. It's the far side, the non-Israeli side of the sea. Anybody know much about what's in the Decapolis? A lot of non-Jewish people. Yeah, this is, I mean, you could tell even by the name, Decapolis. Um, this is a largely pagan Greek part of town. It, was, uh, it had become rabbinic tradition, maybe right around Jesus' time, maybe soon after, that even saying the name Decapolis would make you unclean. Uh, it was looked at as the area that no one should go to if you were a Jew. And so Jesus starts this section saying, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake, to which most people would be kind of shocked. If you are a disciple, particularly a disciple like the, the boys that have been called up to this point, the, the, the Galilean type boys, because Galilee is soaked in Pharisaic Judaism. The idea that you would interact with pagans at all was like unheard of. And Jesus looks at these boys and says, hey, let's, let's cross the lake. And so it's a unique destination, and I think it actually prompts the conversations that we see. And it's not just the boys who are there. We know it's a crowd, but this whole crowd's not going to fit in his boat. So a scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So there's this earnest scribe who seems ready to follow Jesus. Anybody know what scribes did? What was that? They would write things. Yeah, they would copy. They would be copyists. So if you have copies of Torah, they'd probably be the people to do that. And in a lot of ways, they're sort of um, legal advisors uh, to the law. So they weren't like the pastors uh, in, in charge of teaching it or anything like that. But they would advise. They would be like, here's all the things in the law. Let us help you advise legal code. Uh, they would be those sort of people. Now, it's important because Jesus will critique leadership all the time in the New Testament. But at the same time, we see Pharisees, we see scribes, we see synagogue leaders who do desire to follow Jesus throughout stories. So uh, sometimes we think like all the Pharisees rejected Jesus, but that's not true. We, we see Pharisees that end up following Jesus. And he says, teacher, which in Hebrew and um, in Aramaic is, is rabbi or rabboni. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, understanding the relationship of a disciple and, and a rabbi is really important. Rabbis tended to be nomadic. Uh, they didn't tend to stay in one location. They did travel around the country quite a bit, and they would call um, people to follow them. 
They would rely on the hospitality of the, the people, uh, which in a pretty heavy honor-shame hospitality culture um, was, was available, so they would have places to stay, but um, it was never known. They would show up to town and hope that the hospitality would come through. And when a rabbi called a disciple, the expectation is a pretty heavy life on life. There was a constant conversation coming, constant teaching that would be going, and then there would be a constant going and doing like a constant living out and copying what the rabbi does. So when Paul says things like imitate me as I imitate Christ, that's a discipleship kind of language. So when we talk about discipleship in our modern sense, I don't think we even begin to encapsulate what um, the idea is in scripture. It is relationally immersive. And much of what the student actually would do is probably caught even more than taught. And so that would be the relationship all the time. So legitimately, I think Jesus is telling this man going, look, There's no comfort in following me. There's no Hampton Inn around the next corner. There's nothing guaranteed in this process other than time with me. And are you good with that? That's what you get out of this whole relationship, just me. Are you good with that? And you gotta imagine, this disciple doesn't understand the end game. He doesn't go, well, clearly this guy's going to die. He's clearly God. He's going to resurrect. And I'm, I'm bought into this whole system. He knows nothing of that at this point in time. He knows a rabbi that has taught one big sermon, as far as Matthew's concerned, and has done some miracles. And yet he's here saying, I will follow you wherever you go. And do we know if the man followed? We actually have no clue. Uh, Matthew actually doesn't tell us. I'd love to know one day. But are we good with the fact that the call to follow Jesus may offer little in terms of comfort and circumstances working out? Because I think that's what Jesus is challenging people to think through. That's not to say that following Jesus might end up where your circumstances do end up great, but they may not. Health, maybe not working out. Fullness of life, sure. The paycheck that you're longing for, maybe not. Persecution and mockery, could come. Getting that promotion, maybe not. And are we good with following Jesus? with all the unknowns and all the uncertainties that might be involved in actually going after Jesus, imitating Jesus, following Jesus, learning from Jesus, are we good with the fact that having Jesus is the end game of it all? No matter what the circumstances show. Do we, like Paul, kind of stand there and say, you know what, I count it all as rubbish. The the, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as my Lord. And he even says, for the sake I suffered the loss of many things. He's acknowledging that the circumstances didn't work out, that he lost things, but he counts them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So that's it. If all of this stuff only leads to me having Christ, that's good enough. And I think that's the question that's on the table for this disciple, this scribe. And then another of the disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me go bury First go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now at first that sounds very harsh, especially in a culture where uh, you are told to honor your father and mother. And by the end of the story, we will see burial and, and sort of a funeral practice being a very honorable thing. So perhaps what Jesus is saying here is not what most of us probably think he's saying because there's cultural context as always in these sort of stories. I don't think Jesus is just blowing off this guy to be like, don't worry about the funeral of your dad, let's go. Um, Back in first century times, how people were buried is a little more complicated. Um, Here's some pictures that actually help. So people are often actually buried in ossuaries, 
which are these little boxes. Uh, they're not very big, probably about that wide. Uh, so when we were in Israel, this is actually one of the tombs we, we walked by, you could see these ossuary boxes. Ossuary boxes tended to be as wide as the longest bone in the body, uh, which is one of your leg bones. And so that's about as long as it gets. Uh, and so your bones would be broken down and put into this box. Now, in order to do that, your body has to break down. And so what would happen is that you'd be put in a tomb like this, um, your body would be wrapped, you'd be covered in spices, not to embalm, it's actually the opposite of embalming. Uh, the Egyptians embalmed, we embalm to this day, but the spices and all were actually meant to accelerate the process for your body to break down even quicker. Um, so you'd be left with bones and maybe some connective tissues, those would be cut and your bones would be then put in one of those little boxes. So you'd be laid on sort of like a, a shelf for a year. So you'd be dead for a year and then you would go back and put the bones in the body. Now, as with most burial things, there's a lot of superstition involved. And we still have a lot of superstition to this day. It's just what happens. Like, I'm sure even after the sermon, it's like, is it okay for me to cremate my body? And it's like, we, we think through the superstitious pieces as if God's not able to put the whole body back together. But in their day, uh, the decomposition of the flesh had this almost purgatory feel to it. It was a, that that year would be this time for the flesh to atone for the sins of the dead person, and then the final stage of the process with gathering the bones, and perhaps they couldn't be resurrected correctly if you didn't go through this process. There was a lot of superstition, extra biblical superstition. And so perhaps Jesus is speaking to that, because even the phrase, let the dead bury their own dead, a lot of scholars think it's connected to that whole process of somebody going through the the ossuary year superstitious process. And, and I think Jesus is here saying, no, like, you are, you are making excuses in some ways. Which makes sense if you look at some of the other stories of this section of scripture. Uh, we will find um, another phrase that's connected to, to Luke and Mark's stories that actually sort of speak to the disciples not being so keen about going to the other side of the lake. And they start almost... Um, protesting. That's sort of almost how the phrase works. And so um, perhaps these are protests. These are people going, I don't think I want to do this. Jesus, uh, let, me, let me come up with an excuse. But Jesus is here saying, look, death, death is calling. That's fine. But life is waiting. Your father's in his grave. Let's get busy with this. A call of following Jesus is not light or trivial or easy. It's difficult. It's costly. It's hard. And are we sure we're ready for this? Because I would argue, I think at the end of the day, this is simply an excuse tied into possibly superstition for this disciple. And what excuses do we bring to the table as well? You know what, I know Jesus wants me to do this, but man, I'm busy right now. Because we're all busy, right? How was your weekend? Busy, right? It's like 90% of the answers in the room. Good, busy. That's um, what we get, but we feel busy. And we're distracted from all the things that Jesus might actually be calling us to. I don't have time to love my neighbor well. It's like, well, you should make time for the second, greatest, second part of the greatest commandments. Or it's too difficult. But following Jesus and actually doing what Jesus said is just too hard. It's too idealistic. I can't, I can't do all the things that Jesus has called me to. Or I'm not qualified or mature enough. I feel, still feel like a baby Christian. I still feel like I don't have all the answers. And what excuses do we make? And then the challenge, the, the thing that I think is the hardest for Jesus' disciples, the, the crowd that Matthew's after, these Jewish collection of people, is what happens in these next two stories. Verse 23, when he got to the boat, his disciples followed him. 
And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so the boat was being swamped by the waves, and he was asleep. And when they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So I love this story. So where are they going again? Capitalists, the other side of the sea, right? Okay. It's important to note, too, uh, it's probably just as easy, if not easier, to actually walk this route. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is not very big. Uh, and and to, to, be, um, to also understand uh, the nature of Israelites, they are not seafaring people. Um, they never really inhabit the coastline. And even in the seas, uh, so all evidence that we have about how they fished is that they tend to fish mostly by net, and it's mostly along the shorelines. They, w- they even referred to constantly to uh, even the lake as the abyss, the, 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 the depths of the abyss. The idea of being out in large open water was never a uh, thing that the Israelites gravitated to. They tended to be farmers, and those that fished did so because it was economics, but not because they loved being out on the boat. And so uh, it would have been just as easy for them to walk around. It's not, an easy, it's not a hard route. Uh, yet, they head into this boat to cross over to the other side of the lake. Um, so there's even, uh, just for fun information, there's even a boat. Uh, let's see this picture. Yeah, there we go. So uh, there's a whole lot of artifacts in Israel that people are like, oh yeah, this is Jesus' stuff. And there's all sorts of scholars like, no way. Uh, and that's fine. But this is an actual boat that was dug up on the shoreline of Israel that has been dated to the time period of Jesus. We don't know if Jesus got in this boat, but we do know it's a possibility that this is an actual artifact as opposed to like, oh yeah, this is the wood from the cross that somehow is dated to 400 AD. Um, And so this is is an actual first century boat. It's there now. You can go. It's near Capernaum. You can go see it. It's pretty awesome. Uh, They dug it up and preserved it. And uh, it's about the size of 12, 13 passengers, which is pretty awesome too. Uh, and so, um, yeah, anyways, I just thought I'd show that. That was a great storm, uh, which also happened. We were out in the Sea of Galilee, and we had a uh, tour guide who was not a Christian at all. Uh, and he was telling us the story of, of just a couple weeks before that the, the waves had gotten so large on, um, on the lake that they had swelled almost over 10 feet um, and had destroyed a bunch of docks. And he said, some of those stories just happened on this lake. And we're like, you know, that's in the Bible, right? Um, and so um, it was great. It was, it was wonderful for him to tell us this. Now, if you're steeped in your Old Testament and you hear the story of a storm and there's a boat and there's a bunch of sailors who are crying out for help and there's a man sleeping on the boat, what story should be coming to mind? Jonah. Yes. Okay. What is the main idea of the book of Jonah? Oh, that's less, that's less of a crowd. Yeah, not only can you not run away from God, who is Jonah called to? Ninevites, right? They are the worst. They, I mean, you want to talk about like some of the most brutal empires that have existed. The Assyrians, particularly those in Nineveh, were just awful, just brutally awful. And Jonah's called to them. And it's a little bit of this tension of what does it actually look like for Israel to bless and love even enemies? And, he's, and, and Jonah has to go now to the people he does not want to go to, who are the dirty, yucky outsiders, pagans of the story. And where are these boys going with Jesus? To the dirty, rotten, pagan outsiders that they don't want to go to. And I think that's very much what's at play here. And you have this wonderful story that has Psalms parallels all over the place as well. 
Because we hear in the Psalms over and over, it's God alone who can calm the seas. And constantly when they're remembering the Exodus and God rebuked the sea, Red Sea, he's the one who can calm the sea. We see things like Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, how wondrous works of the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. Now remember, they sing these songs all the time. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in the evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men who were at their wit's end. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And when they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. So we have these songs that they would have sung all the time, or like Psalm 89 that's retracing, once again, the God of hosts who delivers them. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O oh Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging seas. When its waves rise, you still them. And you know what the refrain of that song is over and over and over and over? Who is like this Lord who can calm the seas? So I wonder, sometimes we go, these disciples just didn't get it. I wonder in this moment, when they were quote back in that moment saying, who is like this man that can calm the waves and the seas? Whether they're being doofuses or actually go, I know, I know the word. Like, who is this man? Like, this is Yahweh. And in a beautiful, very Jewish way that, that I think ancient writers, and particularly Matthew, Matthew's not very Western or Greek, so he's not going to go, Jesus was this omnipresent, omnipotent, omnipowerful version of God in flesh. He's not going to write that because... It's not how writers write. But he will take these wonderful texts and go, you know these things that always said, this is Yahweh? Well, Jesus is that. And, and, and make these amazing claims about who Jesus is. Now, what story about faith did we just have last week? Anybody remember? Centurion, right? Who, who did what? He's, he, Jesus, he goes to Jesus and is like, look, I know you're powerful enough that even if you just said it, it would happen. And Jesus commends his faith. And these disciples who have just witnessed the story are sitting there going, ah, yeah, Jesus, we're scared. We don't know what to do. And Jesus is able to just with his word, calm the seas. And uh, I think there's a juxtaposition to be had in that story once again. But let's get to the other side. And when he came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, demon-possessed man met him. Out, coming out of the tombs, so fierce, uh, tomb demon possessment, that, uh, that no one could pass that way. So you got to imagine, once again, these Jewish people getting to the other side, all these disciples being like, of course, right when we get to the other side, to this pagan Gentile country, what do we find? Two demon possessed mans out of their mind. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, which was super common over there. The demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us into the herd of the pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Herdsmen fled, uh, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged for him to leave the region. And so uh, they come to the other side. Uh, they enter this couple, these two men, uh, and we'll deal with why Matthew does two verses one uh, another week. Uh, it'll come up multiple times throughout the gospel. We'll deal with that as we go. But um, they come and say it's basically, basically a place where no one could pass. And so there's action in the storytelling. Is Jesus going to be at an impasse? No one else has been able to pass these two. Can Jesus do this? 
And it's also important to know, this is being more emphasized in Mark than it will in Matthew, but Mark has a very Roman crowd. Um, the symbol of the Roman uh, um, occupation in this place, that the 10th uh, battalion that exists in the Decapolis was actually a boar. So you actually have the symbol. Um, it was a boar or a pig, it's the same word in, in sort of ancient Hebrew. And so uh, the symbol of the occupying pagan uh, powers that be is actually this. So I actually think there's some political theater going on as well. Um, because you got to imagine, Jesus just healed a centurion servant. He just was chummy chummy with someone to Rome. And you got to imagine, some people are probably like, so um, what's your opinion on Rome a little bit? And we're going to find out his opinion on Rome by casting a bunch of demons into the symbol of Rome in the place. <clears throat> so what does Jesus do? He's not phased by the evil in this moment. He's not affected by it. And he cast it into the very symbol of Rome. And does Jesus send it into the sea? Not necessarily. It doesn't say that Jesus did this, but they eventually run into the sea. Why do all the pigs run into the sea? I actually don't know. Maybe one day I'll study the text more, know why that's exactly happening. Um, but uh, they seem to be, the demons seem to think running into the sea is the right answer to something. So, and I want to take a moment because none of us, because I want to acknowledge some of us in the room look at the story and go, yeah, cool. That's what happens, right? We're, we're cool with the story. And some of you are like, this is weird. This is the part of scripture I don't always love because it seems so weird. I have a hard time with. And some of you maybe don't even believe in Jesus or don't even believe the Bible at all. And you're like, look, another primitive myth uh, from um, ancient people. And I get it. I get some of those reactions. Um, and there's always a clash of worldviews uh, involved in stories like this. There's a heavenly secular view that everything is just random particles colliding. There's, there's no meaning or purpose to it all. Um, and if it can't be detected by scientific devices, it must not actually exist. And there's a whole other category where um, this is some of my neighbors, uh, particularly. Uh, we had this conversation in a life group the other day, the sort of rise of um, this, this dualism worldview. Um, that as we move from modern to postmodern, there's been an adoption again of sort of good force, evil force, crystals, energy, power. Um, there's this view of sort of an impersonal force that exists in this world of good and evil. But the Bible says it doesn't speak um, to either one of those, I think. I think it's sometimes more profound that evil is more than just a horrible haphazard thing that happened to you or uh, a thing about keeping things uh, in balance. But in reality, it's a little more personal. It's a working to be um, a personal something, personal beings, working to be anti-life, anti-image of God, anti-human, <laughs> all of those things, anti-relationships, seeks to destroy things. But the Bible also makes claims that evil and things like that, demonic activity is secondary to what it means to be human. That we weren't created to experience those things, but we do. And we all do, right? We all have that moment where in our minds and our hearts, we're thinking we really shouldn't do that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. And then something takes over. It's like, well, maybe I should do that. I'm going to do that. And then we do it. And it's like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I go after that? I knew it was going to be destructive for me, and it was. Why did I do that? But there's more at work. It's you, but it's more than you. And the history of evil has only shown that there's things that we just can't attribute to biology and sociology, right? 
Like there's ways that animals certainly react and, and we can look at some of the death and destruction of animal kingdom and go, well, that seems a little bit evil, but then there's ways that humans react that just is different. There's something more going on there. And it's not to say biology doesn't play a role. I'm all for mental illness treatments and sometimes there's chemical imbalances and stuff like that. But there's also other examples, time and time again, where doctors and psychologists and everyone just don't have an explanation. And sometimes the best treatment really is prayer, really is seeking spiritual healing and not just physical healing. That there's more going on than our eyes can see. But let's keep moving. So Jesus finally helped this town get rid of these two men who were a roadblock for them, right? So you got to imagine they're all going to come out and go, thank you, Jesus. We have been waiting for this. We have not been able to, to solve this problem. And they come out and what do they say? They begged him to leave the region. Now, this region is predominantly shepherds and herders. Now, Jesus shows up. He deals with the spiritual evils going on in the place. And in so doing particularly for people that are probably raising hundreds of boars or, or pigs, in so doing, disrupts the sort of economic practices, the, the regular practices of the people. Although Jesus had helped with these two men, the inconvenience of the moment, I would argue, is probably what these men are speaking to, this town is speaking to. Because particularly in a Roman Greco world, everything is extremely stratified. Everything is extremely in order. You know your classes. You know your categories. Everything fits in the box. It, it is what's going to exist in the, in the, in the Greco-Roman world as the church expands. And as Jesus comes, basically destroys one of their farming crops and, and up, up, upturns a little bit, they want nothing to do with it. Because we're going to see a similar pattern. Jesus will go to Ephesus. He will cause a whole lot of silversmiths and stuff like that to suddenly be messed with economically and they're not going to have anything to do with it. They're going to be very frustrated by it and it's going to cause a whole riot in the city of Ephesus. And I think packaging all these things together because Jesus is like, let's go. And are we ready for Jesus to really mess with us when he says that? When that invitation comes, when Jesus says, come, will we go? come step away from that job and step into a job that has meaning and purpose in my kingdom, will we go? Come consider fostering and adopting children into your home. Will we come? Come be willing to speak up for the things that Jesus, uh, uh, the things of Jesus at your next family gathering, especially with that crazy uncle that's just going to spout out stuff that does not sound like Jesus and put Jesus' name on. Will we come? Come, I desire you to move to North Africa to proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard. Will we come? Or will we make the excuses? Will we not understand Jesus' mission and the scope of it? Because Jesus is calling every one of us to go to the other side. It may look different from each of us. I love actually in these stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually all take different trajectories in some ways, different aspects of what it means to be called to discipleship. And I think Matthew's biggest push is for his people to understand that the Gentiles and the pagans are a part of the mission of Jesus. There's different aspects of discipleship for you and for me. Yet the call is the same. The call is to come and die. To come and die to yourself 
and see that in Jesus, in following Jesus, in his vision for life, in his reality of the kingdom, that there is truly life, that we would taste and see that he is good to whatever excuses we're making. Let's repent and step into the way that's truly life, trusting in Jesus as our true king. That's the invitation. And may we listen. May we not make the excuses. May we be willing to get into a scary storm in a boat. May we be willing to go to the places that are very uncomfortable for us in order to follow all that Jesus has for us.